Welcome to episode 28 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Roshni Chokshi, author of The Star-Touched Queen, available on April 26th from St. Martin's Griffin. Yay! So as you guys can tell, we have another guest on the podcast, um, and I'm really excited to interview Roshni about world building. Because I don't know if you guys have heard about this amazing book, but <laughs> it's kind of a Hades and Persephone story set it, uh, in a world sort of based on uh, in the Indian imagery and mythology. So we are going to talk about world building today. Um, so I guess before we go, before we kind of delve into the hows and the whats and the everything else, um, what exactly made you choose this particular story and setting? Uh, when I was in, actually, that's a funny story. When I was in high school, there was this really great English class called evil literature. Oh my God. That's amazing. (laughs) It was was such a great class taught by an incredible professor. (laughs) And, um, it was the first time I ever read paradise lost Mm. and you know, that Mm -hmm. famous quote, I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And, um, my teacher was like, have you ever thought about what that would mean with different stories? What about with Beauty and the Beast? Or what about Hades and Persephone? What if she just got dragged down to the underworld and was like, hey, it's not so bad. I like it here. <laughs> I like it here. <laughs> um, so that's really what got the story started in my head, um, that I really wanted to write about it. And I think I've always, always, always loved the Beauty and the Beast myth so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always. So then the Indian setting was because... Part of my heritage. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, Indian mythology is really cool. There's tons of other worlds in it and Mm -hmm. they're kind of stacked like tears of a cake and they each have their own, I don't, I don't know, like very, very unique worlds to them, like demon worlds where there's no sun, but the light of all these unearthly jewels is plenty and gorgeous demon maidens. And I assume gorgeous demon boys, which is even better. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can I can totally go with that. Yeah, so it was like, right, there's a lot of stuff here that you can really play with it. So yeah, yeah. I think especially when you were writing uh, cultures other than sort of like your traditional Western type of high fantasy, whatever. Um, there's a lot of rich iconography and imagery that you right. can draw from. That's not like, you know, we in the West anyway have kind of things that are like the Christian imagery or, you know, like St. George and whatever, like all the saints have their own iconography, but things like that exist in cultures outside of, of the West, obviously. Right. Um, it was funny enough cause I was, so Kelly and I, who's not here today, but Kelly and I, uh, are doing an avatar, the at last airbender podcast as well. That's awesome. <laughs> but anyway, it's kind of funny because like that show is westernized obviously you know it's it's palatable to a a western audience that isn't familiar with a lot of asian imagery or stories or things like that but there was a a monkey figure in there and kelly and and the other guy who's on our podcast mike were just like i don't know what this monkey guy is and i was like clearly this is the monkey king Mm -hmm. this is um and they're like who (laughs) and you see the monkey king thing a lot there's the I think even in Indian mythology, there's the Kishkinda kingdom and the Vanara people. And then you've got Hanuman who yeah. carried a mountain on his back. and Yeah, and Hanuman having, like, the flying cloud right, and the right. extendable pole. And, you know. Apparently we can credit him for the entirety of Sri Lanka, which is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> 
Um, so that's like a, a rich thing, obviously, to draw from. Right. So, but okay. So then we've kind of talked about your book and the what inspired it and everything. So let's get down to the nitty gritty of how to create a rich, immersive world, fantasy world, I guess. So I'm going to ask you first, where do you start? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I should know this. I really start with um, what I think the character needs to feel at that point in time, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like, I, I know the emotional arc for the story and then I've tried to fit the setting around that mood or something. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, spoiler alert, Maya goes through another world place. There's a really awesome market called the Night Bazaar and uh, I wanted that feeling of her, you know, breaking away from something that she'd known for 17 years to be wondrous and beautiful, but also with sinister things glinting in the shadows. So it became an idea of, well, what would that look like? And what would be in it? More importantly, what kind of food would be in it? (laughs) (laughs) Food's very important, but we'll get to there in a little bit. (laughs) So, I mean, like, for me, I'm kind of sort of similar. Like, it's not necessarily emotionally with the characters, but I see a character in my head, and I see a character in a setting, and then I sort of extrapolate out from there. You know, if I see a character and she's wearing a particular style of clothing then that kind of gives me an idea of what time period it is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of, it, it kind of grows out from there. Um, and, but I know not everybody works like that. Like, do you sit down and like, these are the rules of my world? This is like what no, I do. I don't do, I, <laughs> I think that's amazing that people do that. But I just, for me, I think it's, you want it, this world to sort of be a visceral reaction to how you feel. So I guess when I'm coming up with stuff, I'd, I don't really... I mean, sometimes I'll just sketch it out, but it's really ugly um, stick figures. <laughs> or Pinterest. Pinterest is my life. It's very dangerous. And so I'm like, yes, Pinterest is my book, and that's it. <laughs> you know, I I mean, I think Pinterest is great, but I, I have to limit myself to, like, once every three months. Otherwise, I'll lose, like, days of my life yeah. just on it. Yeah. Like, repinning things. Pinterest is like this... Rip Van Winkle paradox. You emerge, you've got a beard, and it goes down to the floor. I don't know who you are anymore. So. <laughs> I lost my life. <laughs> so then when it comes to the sort of immersive experience, because I think there's a couple types of world building that, you, I mean, I, every book needs to have world building, oh, regardless yeah. of whether or not it's fantasy, science mm-hmm. fiction, or contemporary. Yep. And because I'm lazy, I write fantasy because I can make shit up. <laughs> Same here. That's why I chose fairy tale retellings. They gave you the plot. <laughs> you don't have to do any thinking. Whereas if it's a contemporary story, I would have to do so much research to yeah. make sure it's accurate. No, 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 no. Forget me. that. <laughs> but you know uh, what? The important thing about world building is making sure that it has an internal sense of logic. Yes. And rules. Do you sit down and think about those, or do they just sort of kind of come as you're writing? the characters or as you're sort of extrapolating out from the situation. I think that I I do have to think about that a little bit, especially because I mean, when you're following something like a beauty and the beast or a Hades and Persephone framework, there's always the don't, don't go into the West wing or don't eat the food. So you got to think about that. Like what is the thing that you're denying and how does the world building serve that? You know, how does it create a warning or foreshadow in itself? So yeah, I do think about that, but I don't 
I probably should write it out because my critique partners are always calling me out on stuff. Like, you said three turns of the moon. It's like been five years. Like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> That's what copy editors are for. They catch the little discrepancies. That- I love you copy editors. I really do. I'm so sorry you had to read that. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, when I was writing some like more rules based fantasy, because and I would say that your book isn't necessarily rules-based fantasy. It's immersive fantasy, Yay. which is a little bit, you know, because I tend to think of rules-based fantasy as a little bit kind of in the Harry Potter mold. Yes, yeah. You know, where I see that. there's, like, rules and, and spells and, and things like that. So when I had a rules-based magic world that I was working with, that's when I had to sit down and, like, write out, you know, mm-hmm. basically what the rules are. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of authors. I think Susan Denard, did I say her name? It's, I think it's Denard. Susan, I'm really sorry if we're pronouncing your name wrong. (laughs) You wrote something about the pages of world building. Kate Elliott wrote a great thing about the, how she comes up with world building. So it, yeah, I don't know. It does make a lot of sense to sort of write out the magic of your own system so you know what it is. And wait, I didn't do that for Winter Song, so, you know. But I, Winter Song isn't rules-based either. Yeah. I, you know, I don't have spells. I don't have... Uh, I didn't make a language. I didn't do any of that. There's no caste system. Well, sort of, but that was... <laughs> <laughs> the whole language thing, like, I'm a real language nerd, so when I was in high school, I used to, like, create my own fake languages and stuff like that. What? Yeah. We can talk about how nerdy I really am because in high school, <sighs> I learned both Sindarin and Quenya, which are two of Tolkien's Elvish languages. Oh my God, JJ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like that as as a fantasy nerd. I really like it when the the level of detail in in the in the book is just like just like this rich place for me to play Who in. Speaks Quenya, Legolas. Legolas speaks Sindarin. Dang. <laughs> Quenya is the language of the, quote, high elves. Uh-huh. If you've read the Silmarillion, it makes sense. I tried. Sense. I tried five times. <laughs> I couldn't. I just Wikipedia'd it. <laughs> I was like, tell me what happens. There's a tree, right? So. <laughs> um, Galadriel, Galadriel also speaks Sindarin. Like, most of the elves in Middle-earth speak Sindarin um, because, like, the high elves are have left already. Mm-hmm. But Galadriel does sing a song in Quenya as they are leaving. What about Tenuviel? Tenuviel would have spoken Sindarin, too. She was oh. a Sindarin elf. <laughs> I thought she was... Never mind. <laughs> Luthien, yeah. Uh, I will admit this, too. One of my early screen names was Tenuviel. <laughs> I was, like, super into Tolkien, okay? I love that. I really love that. I always trust tragic women like Desdemona. <laughs> for everything. <laughs> that was bad. Oh, man. Um, that's cool you came up with languages. I could speak South Georgian Chinese. You would just add ong after consonants. <laughs> but you would say the vowels. <laughs> uh, I mean, I can't really speak Sindarin or Quenya anymore. In fact, the only thing I really remember about Quenya is Inaukanatyuka, which means the dwarf is fat. <laughs> Anyway, before we get carried away, let's actually talk about that then. The getting carried away, too much information, too much detail. Mm -hmm. Basically, when when is it enough? (laughs) Gosh, that's a good question. I think that really goes back to the idea of making sure that form is serving function rather than the other way around. So if you 
have lost track of your plot because you're busy describing the palace, which I've done on multiple occasions and had to cut out a scene with a ship that's sailing through the air because it doesn't do anything. It was just fun to write. It's just cool. It's just like, cool. But it's cool. It's cool. Like, can I keep it? It's shiny. Like, no. <laughs> so that's when you know you really have to, to cut it back. Um, at least that's, that's to me where I know when I'm getting carried away. I think for me, good world building is like an iceberg where you only see just the tip of it and mm-hmm. beneath the surface of the water is like this enormous mass. And I think what makes a world feel real and lived in is the sense that there is much more beneath the surface than what you can actually see. Right. But you're right that you can't let all of that stuff or all that information yeah. that you've come up with get in the way of the pacing of your book, the mm-hmm. storytelling, you know, what, you know, if it's not in service of the story, then right. it probably doesn't need to be there. Yeah, that's exactly it. Always trying to think about why does it need to be there, aside from like set dressing, which everyone needs set dressing and ornamentation. And, yeah. and because that lends itself to the atmosphere and the emotional mood of that movement in the book, you know, so that makes a lot of sense, but I, I'm constantly getting carried away. Well, you see that in movies, actually. Like, mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's so much detail in every scene. Yeah. Which the camera won't linger on, but it serves subconsciously to really kind of put the viewer in that world or in right. that space. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing should be done in a book. Like, you can't, you know, you can't let your narrative eye linger on every detail because then you lose sight of basically the whole picture. Right. Um, so then let's talk about the details. I think for me, the details make up the world and we did talk about food, <laughs> which I do want to talk about cause I love food and books. I yes. love food and books. Yes, yes, yes. Like Cindy oh, Pond's books. Oh, I make can't me even. so hungry I every read, time. I read that on an empty stomach and was crying at the end or the wrath of the dawn. Yes. So hungry. So hungry. So hungry. <laughs> I got hungry after reading winter song. Maybe I'm just, what, what other things have great food? A lot of it, a red wall. Oh yeah. Oh my God. The feasts. There's like a, like several feasts in every one of those red wall books. And I love them. Uh, what was it? Uh, deeper and ever pie. Oh, stop it. (laughs) Like otter hot root shrimp, like soup. And like, Oh, the food in deathless. The Catherine Valenti's wonderful, uh, crochet, the deathless retelling. My God, I was so hungry. The way she would describe it, it was just like, eh. Oh, what do you think about food? What do you think it is about food that lends such richness and specificity to world building? I don't, well, especially with fantasy. I mean, food is often the thing that gets us to the other world. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Persephone, six seeds of the pomegranate. Um, there's always that thing about don't eat the food of the fairy world because you'll stay there. Don't eat the pretty little iced white cakes or whatever else. Or even with Alice in Wonderland, those little eat me, drink drink me. me. Yeah. Yeah, You have to, (laughs) it's so important because it's, you're consuming, you're imbibing something of that world for you to be allowed to be part of it. You know, so I think that's why we love the food so much and why it serves as something really critical about a world building in a way. I think, too, there's something about food that's just incredibly specific and evocative Mm -hmm. in a way that you don't have to necessarily tell about. Yeah. You know, like uh, certain cultures, food, you know, you can kind of guess what spices are in it. So what it would smell like. And Mm -hmm. then at least for me, the more specific the food, the more I can kind of guess what the world is like. Mm -hmm. You know, what part of the world it's in, you know, where they're getting their food from. Even the ceremony of it a lot can inform the mood for that 
for the story that you're trying to tell or something. So when you sit down to write, um, do you like how, like how much of it is conscious, I guess? Like how much of it is planned? Like, are you, are you a plotter or a pantser? Oh, I plot. I plot, but then I lose my plot entirely (laughs) because I'm scrolling it on stuff like index cards, which then become crumpled and lost in the netherworld of my purse. And it's just, you know, gone or I lose track of notebooks. See, I'm the complete opposite. I pants everything. I can't, I can't plot to save my life. See, I think I, if I just tried to do that, I would, I would just be stuck. I would be stuck in the the little fairyland feast for ages. I would never leave it. So I have to tell myself by 5,000 words, like she needs to get out. She needs to get out of Dodge. Where is she? 45,000 words. Someone's had to have a kiss. Like what's happening? I mean, I have a sense of, of pace. Like I know Mm -hmm. by at a certain point, this should happen at a certain point, this should happen. But like when I was first drafting winter song, I'd be like, it's 60,000 words and they haven't made out yet. (laughs) I'm like, I know they should get there soon. It's like, (laughs) but I, I, so basically, so it's like, how much of it do you prep before you start writing? I think I do a fair amount of prep. I think for me, the best way for me to start writing and really just hit the ground running with a project is to read my favorite books all over again. Once I have the idea and once I have excessively Pinterested it <laughs> and once I've like called, you know, my best friends and I explain it to them in fragments and they're just like, what are you drinking? <laughs> Wait, we I mean, should probably edit whatever. Anyway, that's okay. We talk about booze on this podcast all the time. Okay, good. So, you know, I hit that, like that point of frenzied manic writer mode where it's like a 2am phone call or I have a nightmare about it, blah, blah, blah. Once all that happens, I refuse to put anything on the page for a week because I have to let myself be really, really anxious about writing it hmm. until the moment where it's like, I, I have to start doing it. Um, and during that time, that's when I'll reread old favorites uh, or even something that's supposed to be in the same feel of the book. Like, I call that tone research. Yeah! I never <laughs> had a word for it. Um, Jeff Zentner, who wrote The Serpent King, and it's an awesome book, referred to certain books as elbow books, like things that he just has to return to. He keeps at his elbow because it's like a <laughs> reminder of language or something else. I was like, that's brilliant. That's exactly what it is. Um, I also like that tone research. So anyway, I do that for a week and then I start writing. So you don't sit down and have like character profiles or anything like that. No, I give myself at least 5,000 words to just sort of word vomit (laughs) without, you know, anything. It's just a shameless, shapeless mass of imagery and things that maybe I should add but haven't gotten around to it. And then I'll start thinking more about character profile, character quirks and details and give them, um, little backstories that may not even make it into the final draft or, or even any draft just so that I know where they're coming from. Yeah. Again, the whole iceberg thing, there's more beneath the surface. Yep. Well, I think that's kind of interesting because that is actually a process sort of similar to mine, but I consider myself a total panzer. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you mean such like a, there's such a methodical, I don't know, chaos to it. (laughs) I guess because I, I tend to think of somebody who plots as somebody who, before they start writing, they know where the story is going. They know about when this is going to happen, about when that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, I sort of do, but it's like all in my, like in the hindbrain, you know? Like, yeah. I'm kind of like, it's a little more there. And, uh, yeah. I and get that. 
you know, and a lot of people have always asked me, like, so do you plot plot out your characters or what Mm -hmm. they are? And I'm like, no. (laughs) I have to write the first draft to get to know them. See, I think that's fair. I just, I limit myself just 5,000 words of free fall. So. Wow. Yeah. For me, it's like 120,000 words. And I'm like, okay, now I know what the book is about. (laughs) So really the first draft is maybe like just a really long, elaborate outline. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, I feel like beginnings are so hard, especially when you're trying to create a whole new world with it. Um, I've had so many false starts uh, with every single project I have. It's, oh, the tone's not right. The emotion's not right. The world just isn't, it's not working. And over and over. So that's why the 5,000 words. It's so funny because beginnings are like the only part I can do well. I can't end a book to save my life. (laughs) I I don't know because for me, setup comes easily to me. Like Mm -hmm. I know the setup. My problem is I've got the setup and then I'm like, but I don't know how to resolve the setup. (laughs) So (laughs) here's the thing. Here's the premise. (laughs) Somebody else figure out what happens. Um, And that's really where my problem is. For me, plot is the hardest. To, to get around because often, you know, that, that very cliche thing of my characters won't do what I tell them to do or blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, it's funny, like Beth and I have talked about this because she's so, she's more plot than I am. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, but we both agree that plot should arise from the character. Right. But where she's like, I need you to do this. <laughs> Whereas I'm just like, I need to fix like what happens to the plot because like it had, like the characters can't act in any other way. So mm-hmm. something else has to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so I think, for me, the the whole that's where the pantsing comes from because yeah. I follow characters and then then I have to look back on it and be like, so what was that story? <laughs> <laughs> so why'd you do that? So oh. why did you do that? Okay, so that was the point of this book. Um, but so then for the world building, do you so you set all of that up or does it just like? come naturally or do you just kind of have this like bank of images and things you want to get to I start with bank of images first okay yeah I mean I've only I feel like the things that I've worked on and really consciously thought about the world building the most was just Startash Queen and its companion and then with what I'm working on now it's this alternative La Belle Epoque era and so it's easier to work with because all the set pieces are already there, you know, and it's mm-hmm, more just mm-hmm. inserting strange little things into it. <laughs> so you do it very consciously, like at certain points in this book, yeah. you're going to pull this image in and yep. pull that image in. Yep. Oh, I wish I could think like that. <laughs> That's not me. <laughs> everything just, everything is like, I don't know how I do it. <laughs> it's just genius. Okay. Don't question it. <laughs> no, I'm very strongly image driven. Um, and I feel like they're, they're really important for emotional parts of the book. Like mm-hmm. the, in the Star Touch Cream, there's a, a tree that bears memories. I love that fruit. image so much. Yeah, but uh, I got that image from Christmas trees. Whoa. Yeah, you know, like those horrible things that sometimes your parents drag you to, like during Christmas. Like, let's go through the light show, but it's really just you driving through a sad little parking lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and it's kind of creepy, and you don't really like it. So. <laughs> It was one of those things. I was staring at this Christmas tree in the distance, like, oh my God, when are we going to get to it so we can go home and I can heat up my ravioli and like, <laughs> watch something. So, um, but the longer and longer I stared at that image, I just kept thinking, well, maybe it's not a light. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something else. <laughs> That's super cool. Yeah, I guess. I don't have a bank of images to draw from. Really? But no. you're so artistic. I mean, you, 
you come from a studio art background. Right? I do come from a studio art background. It, 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 for all that I draw and paint and, and do a lot of visual things, I don't know what my characters look like. <laughs> <laughs> I, no. <laughs> I really, well, like, I, I, I know very, like, a sketch, basically. You know, mm-hmm. a sketch in my head, like, very distinct features. So, like, the right. Goblin King, for me, has two different colored eyes and just, like, a whole bunch of white fluffy hair. And he's, like, tall. Thistle-down hair. Yeah, and he's just tall. And then... Liesl would I just kind of see as somebody who is you know sort of on the small slight side and she's got dark hair um and dark eyes and that's it you know because <laughs> I know so many people and I was talking with Stephanie Garber about this you know she's another pub crawl member and um the author of uh, Caraval, yeah. which is great also a great also image incredible world building <laughs> and amazing imagery in it but she's very very you know she's cast her characters with mm-hmm. actors and I'm like I don't even know what mine look like like I really don't <laughs> like I'm just like mm. and so for me it's I, I it's kind of just a sketch it's just mm-hmm. sketches and then I kind of let everybody else fill in the detail <laughs> but yeah That's I don't draw great. from a bank of images at all Hmm. And it's just kind of like, oh, I guess there's a corner here, and there's a corner there, and there's another corner here. Okay. <laughs> I feel like it, for me, it's it's wandering through the story and finding all these things that were there. And I think that's because, for me, so much of my research is subconscious. Like, if something fascinates me, I just obsessively research it oh, yeah. without really any thought of whether or not I'm going to use it later. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of... Some things just like disturb the heck out of me, and then I have to I have to know everything about it. Like Ortolan birds. What are those? I saw it the first time in Hannibal, which I loved. But it was they're these little songbirds, and they're a delicacy in the south of France. And they eat them in a very horrible way. I think they drown them in brandy, and then they roast them, and then you eat them whole. Oh no! But the weird thing is, is the diners have to cover their heads because it's um, kind of like to hide them from. God's watchful eye for eating such an innocent thing. Whoa. It's messed up. It's awesome. <laughs> Inspired an entire scene and the companion book for Star Touch Queen. But yeah, little things like that. Wow. Yeah, mine don't come, come quite so much like that. I just watch a lot of movies that I like. Yes, and so movies. Movies that I like and yeah. books that I like and stories that I like. And so things that I write are just sort of born from interests that I've had hmm. previously. And then I sort of draw on my internal well of images, I guess, as opposed to kind of like there's this one thing that inspired something specifically. That's not necessarily the case at all for Winter Song or really any of the books I've ever written. Um, so I, 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 really, I really wish I could do that consciously because I feel like it would make writing so much easier <laughs> than it actually is. But then everybody says that. Like, everyone's, everyone's method is, you know, someone else's method is always going to be better than yours, regardless of... <laughs> you just have to do what works for you and tune out everyone else. So. so if you were to give advice to any aspiring writers or people who are working on fantasies and, and maybe you're getting some feedback about their world building, what advice would you give people? I would advise them to know why something needs to look a certain way. Is it sort of, um, is it an expression of a character's psychological plane? Is it to symbolize something very important for them? Like this transition from, I don't know, childhood to adulthood or whatever else. Like I always thought about that. Like, for example, with, um, Alice in Wonderland and those little 
eat me, bite me cakes and stuff. You know, she's growing up and she's growing small. And how do you control that kind of thing? So just be aware of why you want something to look like that. And, um, yeah, I guess for me, if you were to make world building richer or deeper is always to ask the question, why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why do you need it like this? Why does it have to be a certain way? So. Yeah. Why or how, or mm-hmm. just asking continually asking questions like it could, and it sounds like so much work and it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there are certain books that I've read where the world building feels kind of generic. Yeah. And I think that's because they didn't have time to maybe sit down and ask, where does this thing come from? Where does mm-hmm. the fabric come from? And then right. that yeah. itself in itself, like what's the relationship with trade with other countries? Yep. And that opens a whole bunch of other questions mm-hmm. that you don't necessarily need to answer in the text itself. But yeah. again, the whole iceberg thing, it's stuff that you don't see, but it, it informs everything else that's happening right. in your world. Yeah. You need to know why it's like that. And I think it's really kind of obvious when an author knows that and when they don't. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I do agree with you on that. And I think that you know, there's some fairy tales where, like for example, Twelve Dancing Princesses, which I love, and I love Juliet Marillier's um, dancing. Wildwood Dancing. Wildwood Dancing. I oh. love Juliet Marillier. She's amazing. I reread that book every October. But that's a really good example, I think, of, you know, the, in this fairy tale itself, they oh, they escape into this wood, and there's the diamond leaves and golden branches and silver trees and blah, 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 why? And then she pushes a little farther and I love that. Yeah. And I also like that she draws from real myths. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she doesn't necessarily retell them, but I think that's the other thing about world building is that you don't actually have to make it up wholesale. Yeah. You don't. You steal like a magpie. Steal, <laughs> steal. But also understand... Take all the shiny. Yeah, take all the shiny. But also understand what you're stealing. You know, yeah. there's certain imagery, as we mentioned before, the the Monkey King. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of... It, the, the monkeys are kind of associated with cleverness and resourcefulness right. and kind of trickery. Yep, mischievous. Mischievous. Yeah. And that's kind of a lot of deep, rich, archetypal... Uh, just resonance there that you can pull from. So you have to be kind of careful about what you're stealing. But in Wildwood Dancing, so she's already working with the framework of the 12 dancing princesses Mm -hmm. and it's set in Transylvania. Yes. And so this like, um, she just pulls these like little bits of, of, you know, Romanian mythology Mm -hmm. and otherworldly stuff. And Mm -hmm. she just pulls it all together in a way that's just really beautiful and seamless and so the, but you should, you know, and it doesn't feel like stealing because she's created it and made it her own because sometimes if you're not careful about it, if you don't think about the implications of what you're stealing and how you're using it, then it just feels like you're copying somebody Mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. Um, especially cultural implications. Yes. Yes. Be very careful. Be, be (laughs) very careful with cultural appropriation. Of course. (laughs) Uh, which I did write a post about that, um, and I related it to food because everything I did. comes I love back that to food. Post. Everything comes back to food. <laughs> everything comes back to food. Yeah. Actually, that's another piece of advice. Start with, start with what kind of food is in this world, and then everything else. Will just and then yeah, spring around a lot of it. things will spring around yeah. it. Like, like how, how they would eat you their plan food. a party here. Yeah. <laughs> how would they eat their food? What's the etiquette? Right. What's on the table? How mm-hmm. is it eaten? Um, so yeah, food. I think everything comes back to food. Yeah. I think that maybe that's the advice we should give. Like, <laughs> start with food. Start with food, <laughs> and work your way out from there. <laughs> yeah, do that. 
Um, so before we move on, then let's talk a little bit about your writing journey. Beth and I talked about hers. Um, she tells the story a lot on tours and in and, and lectures and workshops. Mm-hmm. And Beth is a marvelous teacher and she's very giving. But she talked about when she was looking for publication, she, it took her 10 years and 10 manuscripts. Um, and you know, it's, I know, it's, I know, (laughs) believe me, I know. And it's a wonderful story about, you know, being persistent and Mm -hmm. learning on every draft and and everything like that. So Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit briefly about your writing experience and and your publication journey, because a lot of writers want to know about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, soul deadening is <laughs> the best way to describe it. And I think I've said this before. It's like taking out your ego and then dragging it across hot asphalt in summer. Is what is pretty much what the writing journey can be described as. But I've been writing since I was like 10 tiny little booklets that I would staple and then give to my parents. And, and they'd be like, Oh, this is, mm. <laughs> I know I did that with my parents and they're just like, Oh, that's nice, honey. And that's nice. I don't and think then, they'd ever read it. Yeah. They put it in a drawer. <laughs> like one day you'll sell this on eBay. No, <laughs> that's never going to happen. It's probably gone. Um, uh, and I, I think the first time I started querying agents was in high school with my fanfic. It was awful. What did you write fanfic of? Twilight. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. Well, Beth said she basically, her first book that she was querying was basically fanfic of Narnia. So that's amazing. Like, I love that though. I do. Yeah. I do. There's but, some things they just, you know, Narnia is a, the Chronicles of Narnia is a great example of good world building, good portal fantasy mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Sturdy cedar wardrobe. And I, I love Twilight when I was in high school, but that moment of feeling seen for the first time is very powerful in young love. And I don't think ever really gets bored of it. No, there's definitely a lot of power in that book Yeah, on a subconscious level. Yeah. Yeah. So I think anyway, but that's when I first started querying. That was a wreck and that's fine. (laughs) I'm really glad nothing ever came of it, but I was so obnoxious in high school. People would ask me what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm writing a book. (laughs) I'm like, good luck with that. (laughs) Um, so you've always been serious about publication. Yeah. Okay. But I think in high school, I was arrogant enough to, to talk about <laughs> being serious about it. And then, you know, after repeated ego pummeling, I never talked about it like at all. Uh, and then I went to college and I majored in 14th century British literature and I absolutely loved it. And I wrote all the time, but I would never talk about it with people mm-hmm. like at all. It was just too embarrassing. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I queried two more times then and I was... That was sad, <laughs> more sad things. And then, uh, you know, I graduate college with an English major. And so you're like, uh oh. <laughs> I know. I, I yeah. I, I know that I, my, my degree is in English lit too. So yeah, you're like, uh. <laughs> what do I do with this? <laughs> I graduated with a useless degree. <laughs> my other degree was just as useless. It was art history, by the way. <laughs> I couldn't even minor in something, <laughs> I, just, I couldn't commit to anything enough. And so that's what I ended with. And, you know, um, first generation American, very loving parents were like panicking. So (laughs) I took a year off and I worked in a freezing tax law office and I learned a lot. Um, but it was just the two of us and I didn't really have much to do and I should have been studying for the LSAT, but I hated studying for the LSAT. (laughs) So I returned to something that I really, really loved. And it was that original Hades and Persephone idea. And I started furiously working on it from like June, 2013 until April, 2014, I think. And then 
I got my agent who was awesome in August and then became the submission process, which was absolutely horrible and depressing. Yeah, submission's its own hell. Oh my god, it was so bad. It was, there were days I just I didn't get out of bed. I don't know how many times I watched You Got Mail. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I wanted so badly, just to have like email, but sad surprise. Um, but that didn't end up happening until March, but it was all worth it. So then, where did you learn about like how to query and all that sort of stuff. Because I'm, I am older than you. So Mm -hmm. when I, of course I worked in publishing, so it's like a little bit different. Um, but I didn't really get serious about publishing until like two years ago, but, uh, (laughs) um, I knew about the process of to publishing. Um, you know, at at that point when I was post-college and kind of writing, like seriously trying to write something as opposed Mm -hmm. to like thinly veiled Sailor Moon fan fan fiction, because that was mine. Um, (laughs) thinly veiled Sailor Moon fan fiction is what I wrote. Um, but you know, there's like blogs and stuff. Yeah. So then how did you learn about the whole publishing process about querying and everything? I went on Writer's Digest a lot. And then there was Chuck Samba. Sambacino, yeah. Yeah. I, I read pretty much every post he ever wrote on things, and I stalked Query Tracker. Query Tracker and those success stories gave me so much life. All through, you know, working in the cold tax law office, I would read all of those. Like, how did they do it? I would look at the queries that they had, and um, and then things just sort of fell in place. But I definitely made that horrible, horrible mistake of when I was querying, when I wasn't querying my Twilight fan fiction of starting off my query letter with, there's no vampires in this. Like, oh no. That was awful. That was mean. Also, because I really wanted to write about vampires. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but that's how I learned. Internet is wonderful. You, you really don't have an excuse. Yeah. These <laughs> you days, you, yeah, there's Just plenty of stuff you can follow Google. directions, you know? So that's not that hard. I mean, don't you get like 200 points on the SATs just for putting your name down? I think so. That's awesome. I think you at least get a one or something on the AP exam if you if you like fill out your name and contact information. How sad if you didn't. Well, what about learning how to write a book? Did you take classes? Did you um, read books? Did you like craft books or whatever? Like, how, what was that process like for you? That was just a bunch of just reading, reading obsessively and all the things that you could get your hands on at all. I don't, I didn't read any craft books, although I kind of wish that I did. Um, I definitely read Strunk and White's Elements of Style. So that's pretty much the only stylistic book I came up with. I didn't read any craft books until after I sold my book. Really? <laughs> it's probably the worst way to go. Not the worst, but like <laughs> kind of a pointless way of going about it. Um, like Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird is fantastic. It's not about craft necessarily. It's really more about just the writing life. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's more about being a writer and being creative and how yeah. to follow your creativity and, yeah. and things like that. And Stephen King's on writing is also really excellent. Um, but actually, the way I learned to tell a good story was by editing other people. That's great. Yeah. Which is, I think when you see other people and you, you, when you have that emotional distance, I Mm -hmm. think from a piece of work, you can see where things could be tightened or, you know, or changed or, you know, all that sort of stuff. For me, that was where I learned. So I think when I left publishing, I mean, I'd written books before. It's not like I hadn't written books before. Um, but I, it gave me a better sense of whether or not something was successful as a book. I think that's also the good thing about having critique partners that yeah. have a strong system of beta readers, especially when you're starting out. 
to make sure that someone's really being kind of merciless with your, with your drafts because so that you can do the same thing and always be constructive. But I completely agree with you. Where did you find your critique partners? There was a site called ladies who critique. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it was really cute. And yeah, I found my first critique partner that way. We still keep in touch. She's great. Um, and then I think Twitter was another place for me to find my critique partners. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, Kelly is my critique partner. We met in an in-person writing group. That's awesome. Yeah. Years and years ago. Um, and then we were roommates, obviously, so after that. But I also found other critique partners on the live journal, because I'm old. As I, <laughs> I, as I like to remind y'all, I'm old. Um, <laughs> live journal before it got bought out by the Russians and became something else entirely. <laughs> <laughs> it became something. Um, but yeah, it's true. Online is definitely... These days, in particular, mm-hmm. pretty easy to find uh, yep. critique partners. I mean, it's like making friends. It's like any relationship. You kind of have to try people out yeah. a little bit, I yeah. think. I also think um, I found one of my critique partners because I really loved her short fiction. And I'd read it in uh, Clark's World. No, did I read it in Clark's World? No, I read it in... I don't remember where I read it, but I really enjoyed reading it. And so I reached out to her and just said, you know, if you ever need an extra pair of eyes on your work, I'm... I'm around and I'd love to learn, so send it over. Yeah, it, it does take some courage too, because for you to reach, for people to reach out, yeah, and and find somebody to to critique their work and everything. There's a good like thing that. about the online world. I mean, you don't have to call someone or show up at their house. Like, what's up? <laughs> I mean, there's some advantage to an in-person critique group, but then depending on the chemistry of the in-person critique group, you can either end up just really drunk <laughs> and not actually working. <laughs> Or, um, you do get work done, but maybe it's a style that doesn't work for you. Like for me, I need a significant chunk of work before I can critique it. Mm-hmm. I can't necessarily do like a chapter at a time yeah. or to me, I need the big picture. I need mm-hmm. the whole, not the whole manuscript necessarily, but I need, a, I need a good chunk to know where it's going. Right. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes the in-person thing, so that's also important communication styles between critique groups and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, all right. Do you have any last pieces of advice or things about your book that you want to discuss before we move on to our next segments? Uh, no. I mean, I guess advice-wise, really just read wisely and, and um, be humble. I think people sometimes forget that in, in all aspects of life. I, I resent that, but I was in high school, so I'm just excusing. All, there are all plenty of, of young writers who are just like, I'm like the next big thing. Like, yeah. yeah, probably. probably Some of not. them were. Yeah. Some of them were, and that's a little annoying, but, <laughs> <laughs> but most of us aren't. So, um, yeah, just read widely and, and read in different genres as much as you can. You'd be surprised all the things that you learned. I, when I was, I obviously loved Harry Potter, but my my dad wouldn't let me binge read it. He would make me, um, if I wanted to read a chapter in Harry Potter, I'd have to then read a chapter in Machiavelli's The Prince or Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh my God! Or Isaac Asimov's The Foundation Thing, and I had to like I had to go through all this stuff just to find out what happened <laughs> in Harry to Dolores Umbridge. <laughs> <laughs> just it was so traumatizing, but you know it teaches you things when you force yourself to. Um, to read outside. <laughs> outside your comfort zone. Yeah. Re- reward yourself with, with your comfort zone by reading, I don't even know. So. 
Yeah. All right, then. So read broadly, read widely, <laughs> and uh, apparently read The Prince. Read The Prince is good. It's good. It's great. <laughs> Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People is nice. It sounds really manipulative when you talk about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I read that. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, um... All right. Yeah. Well, then, talking about books that we've read. So, have you? What have you been reading that you recommend, liked, or just you know anything that you've been reading or talk about and talk about? I finished. Let's see. I've recently finished Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, oh, based on book. JJ's advice. It was just book. such a massive and intimidating tome of a thing. I know it is, but I fucking love that book. It's so good. I loved it. And it broke my heart. But, you know, I'm hauling it around. I read it when I was in uh, Hawaii, which was gorgeous. But, you know, walking around by the pool and people are like, um. It's like a <laughs> thousand like, page book. Is that your literal sunblock? Or are you just going to hold it over your face? <laughs> like, no. So I read that and I adored it. I finished Murray Lose the Young Elites, which was really cool. And now I'm like in a bit of a romance thing. So which all, ones all of tessa dare's stuff nice. is so great it's so nice. funny and i just finished tiffany rises the siren i actually really loved it yeah i talked about those on pub crawl last year where i pretty much binged everything she had written and like when i was like <laughs> caveat you guys <laughs> this is not for the faint of heart yeah and like don't like read it around people sometimes i find <laughs> that i can't read romance novels when my parents are home <laughs> It's like having a boy over, and you're like, uh. it's like always that feeling of like maybe your mom's gonna look over your shoulder yeah. and see what you know. So um, back in when I was still living in New York and I was commuting on the subway, uh, we had a book club at my workplace, the publisher, and um, one of the books that we had read for a book club was an erotica. Uh, it was a menage story with, like, cops, and I can't really exactly remember <laughs> it, the whole thing, but it was kind of awkward because I actually bought it for my iPad. And unlike a print book, where you can kind of, like, fold the pages in, <laughs> like, the iPad's, like, flat. <laughs> and, like, I could I could actually, like, sense, like, people kind of, like, peeking what over my... Yeah, like, peeking over my shoulder. Yeah. And I'm not embarrassed to say that I was reading erotica, but it mm-hmm. was just kind of like, can you not? Like... <laughs> Like, twisting my shoulder, like, one way, like, um, like... It's true. Yeah, I, I have to... I honor these romance books. I'm like, I just want time alone with you, <laughs> serenade you, have a good meal, take you out, like, have a glass of wine or something, and it really does get ruined when your mom is hollering, like, your towel's down here, like, your laundry, or your boyfriend's like, do you want Chipotle? I'm like, shut up, shut up, I'm in a different world. I'm a notorious rake, leave me alone, so. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't really read. I'm I'm kind of in a reading rut right now, and I don't know if it's just because I've been burned out, having read like 33 books in like two months. Oh God! <laughs> so I might just be in that like place. Where I'm just like I can't look can't. at words. I can't. At least word. it's fun to say reading rut right now. You kind of sound like Scooby Doo. Rut I well the I think and the other thing is when I'm writing or editing I can't necessarily read and I'm in the middle of copy edits for Winter Song right now so there's there's that aspect of it but I think it's just like there's all these great books that I have in from the library but I'm just not in the mood for words I can't word I've got my own words and there's like sucking up all that energy from that part of my brain and I'm just like can't word right now so I don't think I've read anything in the past couple of weeks um, on, on my end. So, well, that's fair. I mean, copy edits and 
you know, once you get to the point where your book has sold and you, you are rereading it over and over again, it just, it doesn't, I don't even know what it is. They're just letters strung together. You kind of, you you lose all perspective on your book. You're just kind of like, it's a thing. I just want it done. I just like, it's a, you take it. it. (laughs) That's kind of what I wanted to do. I'm just like, you take it. Uh, Like you're, I just want to hand it to my editor and be like, you, you, you fix it. Like it's awful. I can't, I can't read it anymore. It's not even that it's awful. Like I just can't tell anymore. I'm just like, it's a book. Well, see, that's, that's what I default to. Like I can't tell anymore. So I'm like, it's, it's obviously trash. It just is. Yeah. I go, I go back and forth too. Cause like, depending on how long it's been since I've actually read my own work, I'm like, this is awful. Like, why did anybody buy this book? I can't write. <laughs> and then like, on the other hand, like it's like waves. So it's like, right. I, I passed that little hump and then I'm like, oh yeah, it's not so bad. You know, yeah. like, and it goes back and forth. Just like, go you, go Raj, pat like, yourself on the yeah, back. Yeah, exactly. And like, oh, yeah. Like, Wait a minute. No. <laughs> so. And then, like, enough time has passed and you go right back down to the, oh, my God, this is awful. <laughs> um, and I've kind of broken past the, oh, my God, it's awful to the, I just don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you'll find yourself in that, that point for a little while. And then you see your arcs. And then all of a sudden you're, you're in love again. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. So what are we working on then? So I talked about copy edits. Are you working on anything creative, writing, other other creative pursuits? Mm, Kelly s- talks about baking because she's really good at that. <laughs> oh, I made Oreo cheesecake last week. Ooh. It was really good. <laughs> really good. I'm very, I'm very proud. Uh, I, yeah, I'm trying to learn how to cook, but it's just, I think... You know, my boyfriend is really just nervous now. He's like, I don't know. I, I don't want to get food poisoning again. I'm like, just let me try. You wouldn't, no. you shouldn't get food poisoning from stuff you cooked in your own home. Hopefully. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> just, just make sure your counters are clean. I do that. I do that. I think, I, I don't know. The kitchen hates me at times. <laughs> but actual creative stuff, I was working a little bit on a middle grade because I like a good ghost story. But I'm taking a break from it. And now my creative stuff is coming up with cheap things to put in my apartment in June. Have you seen those little constellation jars? Yes. They're so cool. I was thinking of putting them in my office. Do it. <laughs> you know, I have a day where we just make little constellation jars. So that's literally all I'm doing. Yay, crafty stuff. Crafty stuff. Crafty stuff, yeah. <laughs> I think what's my once my copy edits are turned in, I'm going to do nothing but watch Korean dramas and, like, draw. Drawing. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah. That, that's that's kind of where I am right now. It's like I just cannot look at words anymore. Yeah. I yeah, can't. Yeah. You had a point. You just you <coughs> need to take time for yourself and, and rest your wrist. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Wrist pain is awful. Wrist pain, repetitive strain injury. I'm old. Remember, you guys, I'm old. So. <laughs> I have repetitive strain injury, too, I guess. I'm, maybe I'm just weak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then do we have any off-menu recommendations? So things that are not books. So any other media that you've watched, listened to, enjoyed recently? It is Chef's Table, the documentary on Netflix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just moves me to tears every single... I don't know how many times i Everything comes back to food. Oh, yeah. Everything really does come back to food. Wow. We're shameless (laughs) with this message. I know. Not subtle. No. Like, oh, world building? What you gonna eat? (laughs) Pretty much. Are you not writing? We're, <laughs> we're not writing, we're cooking. <laughs> we're, we're not we're cooking, cook. we're watching about food. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we're writing, we're thinking about food <laughs> all the time. Um, yeah, no, I really, really highly recommend Chef's Table. There's something about watching someone else's journey of getting their dream, or achieving their dreams, and it's just really, it's nice. And it's also visually so, so beautiful. It's the same guy who did Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Oh, I love that one. And it's just like, Oh my gosh. 
my eyeballs. They're so happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's gorgeous. Yeah. What have I been consuming aside from... Because I almost always recommend, like, podcasts, because that's what I listen to at work all day. Mm-hmm. I just listen to podcasts, like, over... Like, and I... Like, you you should see the queue of podcasts that I have, just, like, <laughs> 30 of them, just, like... And I can listen to pretty much all of them in a, in a given work day, so I'm, I'm literally subscribed to, like, 50 podcasts, cause... But it's really good, because... Did you... Are you telling about the Limetown thing? Oh, yes. I've, I've, I've recommended all of the fiction podcasts before. Limetown scares me, so JJ had to tell it to me over dinner. And I was, like, holding a napkin up to my face, like, oh, no, what's going to happen next? Limetown is so good, and it's killing me waiting for the second season. It's, like, actually killing me. It's killing me. I don't even listen to it. I just need, like, you to tell me the story, because if I listen to it, I'll, I can't. It's like Kelly. Kelly doesn't like scary things either, so I have to tell her scary things, like, to, like, give it to her first. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, someone tell me that, or I always Wikipedia plots before I see a horror movie. It's awful because I can't, and I, I have to like look strong. You know, I don't want to be like that person screaming because I will. And you know, my mom's constantly with me because I get scared, so I bring my mom. But then she screams. We're both screaming. It's just a mess. See, the so. thing about horror, and I love horror. Um, the thing about horror is that horror movies these days often rely on the jump scare, and but they're so common these days. You can see it coming. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you can tell. Like. Yeah. There's a scene and the music's tense. But there's some angles that are dark and you know what's really great like Ex Machina. I love that movie. I love. See, that I don't think of that as horror though. What? What did you think that was? <laughs> it's like speculative fiction. No, oh my gosh, that was absolute horror to me. I died at the end. I mean, it's certainly like nightmare fuel in its own way, and it's like it's really unsettling. Nightmare fuel is a good way to put it. I didn't sleep. <laughs> it's really unsettling to be sure, but it's not. I, I don't know. I, I guess because it's it's such a strong sci-fi element. Obviously, it's about artificial intelligence and everything. So, for me, I didn't I didn't find it scary. I think the scariest movie that I've seen is probably Black Swan. Uh-huh. And I don't actually necessarily call that horror, but it is genuinely the scariest movie I've seen. That and The Babadook. The Babadook. It's a, I think it's an Australian horror film. It's written and directed by a woman. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, I've been saying Babadook. <laughs> so Southern Babadook. Y'all want to watch the Babadook? <laughs> Babadook. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Um, but the Babadook really kind of creeped me out. But I like the horror stories where the monsters or whatever's unsettling mm-hmm. is deeply tied to the emotional or psychological parts of the characters. So like in yeah. Black Swan. The evil doppelganger story, and you know the the striving for perfection and the fear of you know being forgotten or overtaken by somebody who mm-hmm. wants to be you, or you know like yeah. that's like such deep, deep fear, and I think a lot, and particularly in women, I think that's a very deep fear. Oh yeah. Um. So black Squ- black swan genuinely like terrified me as just like unsettling like Mm -hmm. walked out of the movie theater with just like this like amazing feeling of unsettledness after after that movie was over but i don't really like horror movies do not keep me up at night they (laughs) what they don't i'm like totally cold and callous or they don't they don't really scare me um but the horror fiction is different horror fiction and i don't know if it's because 
my own brain can supply images much scarier than any movie can, <laughs> or it's what you get for having studio art back. It's <laughs> your own fault. Or it's like you know, because it's in my ear, and somebody's telling me the story Ugh, in my no, ear. No, no, no. And you, and the, that's the thing. The, the thing that takes away the fear, I think, for a lot of like jump scare movies for me is mm-hmm. the visual aspect of it. You can tell there's a person in a dark room and the music gets tense and like you, and you, for me, I know when the jump scare is coming. And mm-hmm. so if I don't want to be a part of the jump square, I'll literally look at the bottom right corner of the screen. I'm just like, wait, I know it's coming. I'm just going to let it pass. I can't you can't do that, that with a whole podcast. I get so stuck into like after I saw the grudge, I couldn't. Even, like, yeah. <laughs> that was awful. I could barely like get out of the shower and look at myself. I thought I was the grudge. <laughs> like that was this the worst. See, that's the thing is like the movie didn't creep me out in that way, but I read a Sailor Moon manga years ago. Um, and I, we went back to Sailor Moon cause this is like a formative thing of my youth, but read a Sailor Moon manga years and years ago where they just kind of offhand tell the story about like, if there's an urban legend that if you look at your reflection in a mirror at night, it takes your soul to this day. You guys, I was like 14 when I read this. Okay. So oh to God. this day, if I have to like go to the bathroom or pee in the middle of the night, I like <laughs> won't look at the mirror. Like oh my God, I will I like not. literally open the door and then stick my hand in and turn the light on first. So like, I don't have to like deal with this. You know, I think my mom told me something similar. My mom grew up in the Philippines and she moved here and she was in her mid twenties. But she said a literally similar thing. Yeah, there's some like they're trying to like summon someone from the mirror. Oh, it's like the Bloody Mary thing. <laughs> the Bloody Mary thing. Yeah, yeah, the Bloody Mary thing, which apparently is not as old as I thought it was. It's not. No, I remember because I was in ed like this editorial meeting with um, in my old job, and we we're talking about this book and this urban legend about Bloody Mary, and everyone older than like forty, no idea what we were talking about. What? I know, and I was like, you mean it hasn't been around since you were kids? Like, when did this come about? Like, who did it? Yeah, who started this? Uh, it's like the Slender Man thing, I guess. Don't cannot <laughs> even. That's the worst thing for me. Like, I cannot. That well, like, creeps me out yeah, so much. And the same thing with, like, so the thing about, I think, audio horror that I can't, I can't look away from the jump cut in an audio. So ah. if there's a sound that comes at you, I can't. You know, so you have to react. You have to react. So I'm like, not prepared. Si- yeah, I'm like sitting. At, like when I listened to Lime Jam for the first time, I was sitting at my desk. I was also in the office late at night, so it was like just me, and it was like dark. Fool's move, man. I know. I was like, this is a bad. I have made a big mistake. <laughs> I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> made a huge mistake. <laughs> but it really was like I was so tense and my heart was racing so hard that I had to stop listening. God. Until I, because I went out to dinner with Mark later and I had to stop listening until we both went home and <laughs> then I could finish listening to the episode. But it was that. I think that's what's so scary because I, unlike a movie where I can basically choose to check in or check out, depending mm-hmm. on, you know, the visual element anyway, I mm-hmm. cannot escape the sound. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Audiobooks are great for that. Codename Verity, when I was oh, listening God, to it. God, I sobbed oh, so gosh. hard. I was driving, and I was just like, fine, just take my heart. Whatever, I'll just stab it at myself and throw it at you. So it Codename Verity is only one of two books that has made me ugly sob. Ugly, yeah. Ugly sob. Because I'll, like, awful. tear up in books and things like that, mm-hmm. but, like, 
deep wrenching, know, yeah, like snot running down your yep. face, yep. ugly <laughs> sobbing. That was Codename Verity and the Book Thief for me. Oh ooh, no, I, I too much too much heartbrokenness. I immediately listened to Modern Romance narrated by Aziz Ansari after that, nice. and it was just hilarious. I mean, he was just berating you the whole time for being lazy and not reading. You had to have someone read it to you. <laughs> it's funny because I like I haven't bought or listened to any celebrity memoirs. I keep meaning to, but like I, I tend to like my audiobooks tend to be genre of some kind, like mm-hmm. science fiction or fantasy with like a really strong plot. Like really strong plot. So the most recent ones that I had listened to that I really loved were Pierce Brown's books. Hmm. Red Rising, Golden Sun, mm-hmm. and Morning Star. And the narrator for those books excellent. Also, I think probably the best audiobooks ever or the best audiobook narrator is the woman who narrates Lily Brain's Diviner series. Hmm. All right. Oh my gosh. She can do like a million different voices. Really? I, I highly recommend those. If you're looking for an audiobook to listen to, um, definitely. And I'm going to listen to Illumini next. Illumine is good too. That Illuminate? one, I, yeah. I can't pronounce anything, can I? <laughs> no one listened to me. <laughs> Illumine is also good. It is, um, I kind of think of that one a little bit more as an adaptation rather than like a like a straight up reading of the text because the text is kind of like like ephemera, like found information. So, yeah. uh, but it is narrated by a full cast and it's pretty cool. Like I really like I it's it's a pretty pretty great listening experience. Okay. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled podcast episodes. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like the show, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Roshni, at uh, at not Roshni on Twitter. Sorry, guys, it's not that original. <laughs> or my website, www.startouch.roshnichakshi.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at sjjones. That's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowen, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.